0: Welcome to Beyond the Crucible, I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership.
1: If you're living your life in any way, even inside your own head, not necessarily saying it out loud, I'll be happy when I'll be happy when I find the right partner, I'll be happy when we get married, I'll be happy when we have a kid, I'll be happy when I get a house, when we get a bigger house, when we get a bigger car, when we buy a yacht, when we get another million, another billion. You are never going to get there. It's never going to happen because the problem with it is, and this is the hook, this is the hook, this is the drug is all those things you're saying, I'll be happy when, they all work. That's the, that's the hook. They do make you happier, but it's so brief.
2: Do you identify with that? With the idea that life would be grand if, and fill in the blank. If we're honest, most of us would have to say we've been there. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show. Our guest this week, Dove Barron, helps people move beyond the if-onlys. A best-selling author and one of the nation's leading authorities on meaning-driven leadership. He speaks no-nonsense truths to empower clients and audiences to live their purpose, share their inner genius, and not, as he puts it, disenfranchise the parts of themselves that are critical to leading lives of significance. Most people's pain, he tells us, is hidden by our success. And that hiding place, he says, is where crucibles often cause the most damage.
0: Well, Dove, thanks so much for being here. I love the image you have of the dragon leader, the dragon's lair, uh, the fire that you know might destroy us, but yet there are things we can learn from it. Just your whole notion of uh, both helping leaders improve uh, their organizations, but helping them improve themselves. And we'll get into your book, One where Thread, when you sort of expand on this uh, a fair bit about purpose and and, you know, significance and success. But before we get into that, I'd love to hear, and obviously we'll get to the uh, the fall, the physical fall. You know, some of us have had metaphorical falls, but you've had a, a big <laughs> physical one. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about the background. We've talked off air, just like uh, you're from UK, and you've even spent time in my homeland, Australia, on the other side in person. Just tell us just a little, little bit about... Dove Baron and just family growing up and kind of what what's the backstory behind uh behind Dove?
1: Well, first of all, gentlemen, thank you for having me on. Um, it's a pleasure and an honor. Um, I'm grateful to be here. And I am appreciative of what you're doing and the work that you're doing, and I think it's really important for those of you who are listening. You know, remember that these guys put these shows together. They don't get paid to do this. Um, they're sharing this with you to give you value. So make sure that you do. Uh Rate, review, and subscribe to the show because you know they're giving you quality information all the time, and i'm honored to be here to serve in that capacity as a sort of uh reader's digest version of my <laughs> background I, which you know we can spend a long time on, but we won't um I promise uh, I was born in northern England um i've been gone for more than forty years, so i've been gone much longer than I ever lived there, but I was born in abject poverty, surrounded by crime, violence, addiction. Uh, all kinds of, uh, traumas, uh, that we don't have to get into, uh, that, you know, I watched people be defeated before they'd even reached their teens. Mm. I, 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 it was clear to me that these people had already been defeated and were never going to be anything else. And it's very interesting because, uh, I, I don't know anybody else who made it out from my neighborhood. Um, but I do know other people who made it out who I didn't know. So for instance, um, Albert Finney the famous actor was yes. from where I was from um, as was uh Robert what was his name last name sorry which we just went blank on him he played Jesus of Nazareth uh he he made it out um Ben Kingsley and several others really? who were all from the exact neighborhood I grew up in wow. which was um there's a, I think there's a technical term for it uh yeah that's the place <laughs> um, <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a pretty terrible place and pretty oppressive Um, But I made a decision uh, when I was 14 years old to leave. I had made a commitment that my mom thought it was crazy that I had that idea, and I decided I was going to get out. I did. So I got out of Salford, and uh, particularly the ghetto inside of Salford, which is called Lower Broughton. And uh, I made that commitment. Nobody thought it was true. I knew it was true. And as I got a little bit older, you know, the drinking age in England is 18, which means everybody's in the pub at 15, which I was. And so, you know, I'd sit around my mates and I'd say, I'm out of here. This place sucks. And they'd say, yeah, it does. And then one day I came at 20 and said, I'm out of here. And they're like, yeah, we, you know, we are too. No, no, I've got a ticket. I'm going. You, what, are you going to Spain for a holiday? No, no, I'm leaving. And nobody would believe that. And it was interesting because all that Yachnian about how I was going to leave and they were going to leave suddenly became, well, you can't leave. We got Man United, we got Man City, we got Boddington's Bitter, we got Fish and Chips, you got your family. Yeah, and I got to go. So I began to travel. Now I'd already studied. Um, I studied uh, as a small child. My mother thought I was possessed. So she si- shipped me off to the rabbis because I would say things that were just strange. And I began to study Kabbalah. And so my travels at, at 21 was to travel and start studying with all these spiritual masters. So I studied Vedanta, which is Hindu philosophy, Buddhism, the Tao, Coptic and Gnostic Christianity, Kabbalah, um, all these different and all these different religions, studied and lived with these masters, and then discovered that even though I had great spiritual knowledge and I met people who had great spiritual knowledge, they couldn't get their stuff together. Mm-hmm. So I started studying psychology. I studied Jungian psychology, hence the metaphor of the dragons, and um Found there, I became a young, young therapist and got really sick of people moaning and complaining, but 't doing anything that wasn 't working for me, <laughs> so I started studying what was called the psychology of excellence, which today is called leadership. So I started studying these people who were enormously successful, and I found many of them were kind of soulless they were lost had all the had all the toys but were kind of lost. I was already working with people who were in a similar position to what you were in work back in the day and I was but I could find that they were lost people. So I started then studying, uh, putting those things together. And in about 83, I stumbled into quantum physics when I was in Melbourne. I lived in Perth, but I was in Melbourne on a trip. Studied studying quantum physics. And from there, studied studying neuroscience. Then later wrote a thesis on all these, how they come together. Quantum physics, metaphysics, and psychology with neuroscience. So that was kind of the, the, the background and my friend just came to me one day who owned a national menswear company that you may or may not remember, Warwick, it was called Renoir's. Do you remember Renoir's menswear mm. clothing? Mm. It was a national clothing company. Okay. Um, the guy who owned it was a friend of mine, and he said, I want to come speak to my managers. I said, well, about what? I'm not a speaker. <laughs> and he said, anything you want. And I went, are you crazy? And he goes, no. I said, okay. I I, I don't know. I don't understand. I said, and he said, but I have one condition. I said, what's that? He goes, you come dressed exactly as you are today. Now, you should know this is 1984,
0: right.
1: and my hair is, be- is below my chest. <laughs> and I had the old Howard Stern hair, you know, the black <laughs> ringlet curl. Right. That is what my hair is like. It's thick, black curly hair. Right. And I have earrings, yeah. but in Amen. those days, they were big enough to hang pir- parrots off. <laughs> right. And I was a bodybuilder. And when you're a bodybuilder and you're in your early 20s, it's important that everybody knows by looking at you immediately that you're a bodybuilder. So you always wear T-shirts that are too tight and ripped jeans and the designer stubble and all the long hair and all that. But I also used to wear beautiful suits. That's how I would met him because he made my suits. And he, and he said, but I want you to wear this. I said, but can I just wear a suit? And he goes, nope, I want you to look like this. And I go, well, I can put my hair in a tail. He goes, No, I don't want your hair in a ponytail. I want it to look like this. My hair was like wild. <laughs> I turned up that day, as he instructed, I put my head in the door, and I saw everybody at this long, you know, the old the old board boardroom right, table. Right. And they saw this hippie stick his head through the door. <laughs> and they look at me and they give me what we called in the in the UK the F off nod. <laughs> okay. The F off nod is off, you're in the wrong room. <laughs> <laughs> and they give me that look, and uh, I just stayed there, way. and then they said, let's welcome our speaker, Dove." Steve says that. I walk in, and, you know, jaws hit the, <laughs> the death. And I said, and you remember this work. You remember this time, because I said, you know, the whole issue with how the Aboriginal people of Australia were right. treated was really right. high-level stuff. It was like that was becoming very aware, the white rabbit fence and all that stuff. And I said, put your hand up if you're a racist. Well, you know, who's going to put their hand up? (laughs) Nobody. I knew that. See, I don't remember my speech, but I remember this. I said, put your hand up if you're a racist. Nobody put their hand up. I said, put your hand up if you would judge somebody by the color of their skin or the way they look in any way, shape, or form. Nobody put their hand up. And I said, you're a bunch of freaking liars. Wow. Every single one of you judged me by the way I look. Mm. What you don't know is I'm your customer. Because the reason I know Steve is you guys make my suits. Yes, I look like this, but I don't always look like this. And if I'd have walked in your store, you would have lost a customer. But I walked in when Steve was there, and he got a customer. Now, I don't remember anything else I said, but I looked over at Steve and thought, oh, my God, you know, I, I put the bed <laughs> on this one. And he, and he had a smile that was so big, he knew what he was doing. He's far smarter than me. So that was the beginning of my speaking career. And it really is what it means to be authentic is show up as you with your personal, what it is you bring to a situation and call out what is the lie. And one of the challenges we have in leadership today is that nobody calls out the lies. And that's what happened. So that was the beginning of the career. So that's a a very long, short version of my story.
0: Oh, my gosh. I mean, that is so fascinating. I mean, You know, England far better than I do. But you know, I went to college in England, the college I was at at Oxford, Balliol was, you know, pretty progressive. So it it was more diverse than the other colleges. So we had folks from Northern England who was like, do they like people like us in Oxford? Because, you know, they were sons of coal miners. I mean, they were in Northern Ireland, all the rest of it. So uh, and still back then, the classes didn't mix. This is like early 80s, which is pretty sad, even within an Oxford college. And that's a whole nother story. But so I'm somewhat familiar uh, with the situation. But there's this mentality, at least when I was there, that, you know, it was so rigid that if you if you thought that you could do something better, you'd be like, so, you know, we're not good enough for you. You, you kind of don't. What's the problem? Like, is almost discouraged from moving out of whatever situation. But what you did showed so much courage. People were like, well, everybody talks about getting out, but who does it?
2: Before we leave this subject, I have to fill in for listeners who are like, Dove said at the beginning there were several people who who he knew left what he called shitsville and, and succeeded. One of them, he said, was Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, Robert, I just looked it up. It's Robert Powell. Just so everybody Robert knows Robert Powell. Yes, <laughs> Robert Powell is one of Dove's uh, fellow travelers uh, from his his hometown. So I just wanted to make sure people knew that
1: Robert Powell is a Salford lad who who made out, but he you know, but he didn't keep his Salford accent. That's for sure.
0: Well, yeah. But there
1: again, neither did I.
0: So. <laughs> well, but it's, well, I mean, yours—you've been a lot of different places, but um, so I, I love what you do uh, with. One red th- thread and all just you know briefly because I want to you know shift into that, yeah you, know, you were a successful speaker in uh, leadership and doing well, and then you had this physical fall, which it seems like you know you were doing well, you were focused on helping leaders. My sense is it shifted your perspective on leadership. so talk about the fall, the physical fall, and how that shifted your perspective
1: June nineteen ninety I was the most successful i'd ever been up until that point you know national tours speaking tv radio newspapers magazines all those things it was pretty great you know th- that moment of thinking oh my god this is you know i've made it <laughs> what a joke uh, <laughs> such a clown i even believe my own press uh, <laughs> and um i came back from a tour i was exhausted took a few days off Went up to a place called Whistler, which you may be familiar with. The Winter Olympics 2010 were there uh, in British Columbia. Had a couple of days hanging out. But what people didn't know about me at that time is, aside from doing the things I was doing speaking, I was also a full-blown addict. Now, when I say addict, I'm not talking about drugs. I'm not talking about alcohol. I'm talking about adrenaline. I was a major adrenaline junkie. I did stupid stuff all the time. And at that time... You know we we'd spent the day, we'd had a lovely day out by the lake, and all of that, and then we came back to a place called Brandywine Falls, which is this magnificent glacial waterfall. It's about uh two hundred feet up the water comes rushing down the fall off the glacier, and in June, you can imagine that it's now nice and warm, the glacier's melting, you know, but it's still the end of spring, so it's still been pretty wet everywhere. And we watch this water come down, and you're, there's a view site. And I said to my buddy, "Let's see if we can hike down. There's no path, right?" <laughs> and we're in, we're not dressed for it. But he's like, "Yeah, okay." So we hike down. We get to the bottom. I said, "Let's see if we can get behind the waterfall." He's like, "What are you talking about?" I go, "There's a gap between where the water comes off the edge, and behind there's a wall of rock." And he goes, "How wide is it?" I go, "I don't know." I go, Let's "See if we can get behind it." Well, it's about four feet wide. And, you know, inappropriately dressed with 70 mile an hour spray coming off that waterfall as it lands mm. with climbing over these mossy rocks. We get behind the waterfall, which is filled with negative ions. Negative ions make you feel positive. It charges the body positively. It feels fantastic. When I came out on the other side, I felt like Superman. I felt like I had a big S tattooed on my chest and I could do anything. It was like, yeah, we were in cycling. Yeah. If you had have put your hand out, that waterfall pressure would have ripped my arm off. It was that powerful. So I said to, when we got on the other side, I said to my mate, let's not hike back. He goes, should we take the elevator? Huh? <laughs> and I'm like, no, let's free climb. Now, it, you may be a bit nervous about mountain climbing and think that people in mountain climb are crazy. I understand that. But mountain climbers have gear. They have safety lines. They have hooks. They have all those kinds of things. And you go, well, okay, but free climbing is crazy, right? Well, it's more crazy for sure. But you have chalk, you have the right clothing on, you know, Yet you, you've, you've, You made sure your sight is set. Okay. Free climbing while you're soaking wet with the wrong footwear on and the wrong clothing. That is insane. And that's what we began to do.
2: Hmm.
1: And at 120 feet, I reached for a rock. And that rock dislodged a bigger rock that came down and hit me in the face. (laughs) Full force. And knocked me right down. 120 feet. 12 stories. And I landed on boulders below, not on grass or gravel, but Mm. boulders. And my head opened up like a coconut, just split me wide open. I've had somewhere around 10 or 11 reconstructive surgeries. Um, And I can tell you the gory details that you don't need to know that. I did die five times during that process. Mm. But I was from Salford. I was a tough lad. I was a (laughs) boxer. I'd been a martial artist. I was a trainer of leaders. You can't tell me, man. I'm coming back. So people would say to me, how you doing? And with my jaw wired closed, I'd say, I'm coming back. I'm great. I'm coming back. It was a lie. It was a lie. Because when I was in the quietness of my own time, I was deeply, darkly depressed. And I felt like my life was over. And that went on for a long time. And I'd go out with my mates and I wouldn't, There'd be nothing would be funny. And I'm a funny guy, and I hang out with funny guys. Nothing would be funny. And I just think, oh, that's it. My life is over. And then one night, my, lads, my mates took me out, the lads. And I, got, you know, I had a great night. And I laughed for the first time. And I thought, oh, my God, I am coming back. This is great. I was in a, just a fantastic mood. And I came home. One of the lads dropped me off. I came home. I opened the back door into my house. And I was just feeling so much joy. And the light from outside shone across the kitchen floor. And across the floor, I could see garbage everywhere. There were meat wrappers and coffee grinds and kitty litter and empty cans. And it smelled horrible. And I went from being in pure joy to being in pure rage. I knew exactly who the culprit was. And I was going to find the culprit. And I felt like killing the culprit. Like that rage was so fierce. And when I got into the living room, there was the culprit. Curled up all cozy on the couch, comfy. And I put my hand up like this to strike. And about halfway down, that's not who I am. I'm not a violent person, even though I've been trained in those things. It's not my nature. I stopped and put my arms down instead and scooped up the cat into my arms. (laughs) And the cat was cold and the cat was dead. And I fell onto my knees and began to first cry, but then sob just, and I was a couple of minutes and realized I'm not crying for the cat. It was the first time I'd given myself permission to feel the grief of who I had been was dead. And that moment there, and I spent a couple of hours on that floor crying. I realized I had three paths that were in front of me. The one I'd been trying to be on, which was I'm coming back. Well, I got news for you. Nothing in life goes backwards. This wasn't going to work. And I, I knew it in that moment. The second path was the most seductive of all the paths. And that was to stay right there, to remain a victim, to have this great story. I gave it everything. And, you know, the gods were against me. Fate was against me. It's not my fault. I'm a victim. And the third option was to find out why I'm here. What is the purpose of my life? Now, if you'd have asked me, was my life on purpose the day before I fell an hour, five minutes before I fell, I would have said yes, but I'd never really looked into that. And that was the moment when I had to start looking for my red thread to find out what was that fire within my belly that I needed to serve in the world. And that was the transformation. So when people say, you know, did the fall change your life? You know, they think it must have, but it didn't. That's not what changes your life. It's not that moment when the thing happens it's the moment when everything seems to go back to normal. Remember when I went out with the lads, I had a good laugh. It was that moment I could come back. I could be normal. It's that moment when you have a choice. So there's a, there's the pivotal moment, which is the fall, but there's the choice moment where everything can go back to normal and you go, no, enough. It, something else has to happen. That was the transformational moment.
2: And what I love about that story, Dove, is – and we see this a lot with guests on this show – is that your crucible happens and you don't bounce back immediately. You don't bounce back in a day or a week or a month or – and that's Warwick's story too. It took time. It can take time and it's okay, listener – for it to take time for you to learn the lessons of your crucible and come back. It took dove time. It's certainly no, I mean, you certainly know it's taken Warwick time to come back, but it's important, right? It's critical. Had you jumped too quickly, you you wouldn't
1: have learned. You're absolutely right. You've got to give yourself that time. But, but I want to push back a little bit and just say, you're not coming back. You're coming forward. You can't come back. Listen, I want you to get this. The crucible that happened in your life wasn't a mistake. Now, believe me, if somebody had said to me, oh, this is all for the good, you know, and it's all going to work out great (laughs) now, I'd have punched him in the throat.
0: Absolutely.
1: Right? You know, that's just a stupid thing to say to somebody who's going through a lot of pain. The truth is that will be true maybe two years from the moment of it happening, but not in the moment because in the moment it's hell. There's no doubt about that. But there is no back. There's only forward or stagnation. Stagnation is the commitment to, oh, you know, I'm a victim of. But the commitment moving forward is to say, what is this? So I believe this is my truth. It's Mm -hmm. not the truth. These events happen to wake us up from something and to wake us up to something from something you've been and to something that's always been within you, but you've never allowed out.
0: You've talked about, you know, significance and success. And obviously, you want to empower and help those that you speak to those you work with and consult and coach to be successful. But yet, you want them to have purpose. I think you put it true purpose. Talk about why that's success is fine, but success in of itself, is not satisfying i think you have a chapter that talks about what's missing or i'll be happy when so talk about that whole concept of it's it's not just success it's success and
1: so you know we, to do that we have to start by addressing the the misconcept the the mass hypnosis uh, and the mass hypnosis is um, of this idea around individualism and capitalism and and i'm you know i'm pretty obviously an individualist right and i'm obviously a capitalist but not without compassion not without consciousness not at all so what does that mean in this context it means that if you're living your life in any way even inside your own head not necessarily saying it out loud I'll be happy when. I'll be happy when I find the right partner. I'll be happy when we get married. I'll be happy when we have a kid. I'll be happy when I get a house, when we get a bigger house, when we get a bigger car, when we buy a yacht, when we get another million, another billion. You are never going to get there. It's never going to happen. Because the problem with it is, and this is the hook, this is the hook, this is the drug, is all those things you're saying, I'll be happy when, they all work. That's the the hook. They do make you happier. But it's so brief. So you shoot the main line of heroin, which is a million in the bank, and it's like, wow. And you're excited, and maybe even excited for a month because it's your first million. But you go, yeah, and then it starts to work. And you go, oh, clearly what I need is five million, but now it only lasts two weeks. And before you know where you're at, it's, it's fleeting, all of it, fleeting. So what are you looking for? What you're looking for is you're looking for an external, reference point of your own joy. It doesn't exist externally. It exists internally. And that's not some uh, psychological babble or pop psych. We're talking about real stuff. You got to look at what is it in me? What is it I'm actually looking for? And I'm going to give you, the listener right now, the clue, because I said away from and towards, right? You wake up from, you wake up towards. What you're waking up from is that you've been running away from your pain. So let me give it to you straight. Most people's pain is hidden by their success. We use success to hide our pain. And we hide our pain between, behind our ego, which is our identity. So we never get to the pain. We never get to the purpose because we're pursuing externalized success. If you don't stop and go, hold on a second. So here's the question. I'm going to give you the question right now so you can have the answer. Ask yourself this question. It's a very simple question, but the answer will take some time. It'll take some commitment. And that is, what is it that I needed when I was a child that I couldn't get or couldn't get enough of? Now, listen to what I said. As I told you, I work with very high-level, multi-generational families of wealth, and it's the same question I asked them. What is it you needed that you couldn't get that you, or you couldn't get enough of when you were a child? I had everything, you know, my dad put me in a private Mm -hmm. school, but, Mm -hmm. but is that what you needed? Right. So one of the guys I worked with, he said, well, I guess, okay, well, in that case, I guess I needed a connection with my dad. I said, okay, good. That's fine. And he said, no, no, hold on a second. You know, because he wants to protect his ego. <laughs> he goes, I had that. I said, oh, did you? Go, I go, yeah. I go, how did you get it? He goes, fishing. We, my dad and I would go fishing. Right. I go, great. When you'd go fishing, would you connect at all? And he goes, no, not really, but we were just together, and that was great. Go, all right, that's fine. Can I ask you how many times that happened? He said, sure. I said, how many? Two. It wow. happened twice. Wow. Do you think you might have needed a little more of that? <laughs> and he goes, Yeah. And I said, tell me your life hasn't been about trying to get connection with people who don't want to connect with you. The guy starts to ball. He goes, that's my first two marriages. That's my first two marriages. Trying to connect with women who don't want to connect with me. I said, yeah, it's not gender specific. It's what you needed. So you need to serve the world in some way through serving a connection. Now that's vague and we have to drill Mm -hmm. down and that's when we get into the really powerful work.
0: So, I feel like, as you're helping leaders understand this, it must it's must be revolutionary because so often we try to find you know love and fulfillment in all the wrong places. It probably you know sounds like a country music song or something. I mean, it's you know, and it's just you know, and you just see it, and it's like here we go, the fast cars and the jets and the house in Monte Carlo and whatever else. and it's just. It's just tough to be happy. You pretend to be happy because you look a bit of an idiot if you're miserable uh, and show people, but you're just helping. But
1: it's Instagram happy.
0: Right, right. It's such Instagram a good phrase. happy.
1: It's a picture of you on a private jet with three girls who've got push-up bras on while you're getting out of a Bentley you rented. <laughs> right. you know, come on. This is the problem. This is what I'm saying is is it's a mass hypnosis and, and the, I understand it because I, I teach the psychology of marketing. I get it. If you're 20 years old and you're seeing that, you want right. it. Of course you do. Like, who doesn't want to be surrounded by three girls in push-up bras on a private jet or anywhere else? Yeah, of course. I'm 20. Of course I want that. But it's not going to make you have joy. It's going to give you happiness. Happiness is temporary.
0: Exactly.
1: Joy is a state of being. It's not externally referenced. Self-esteem is externally referenced. That's where I lived before I fell. I was self-esteem is externally referenced. Self-worth is internally referenced. Who I am doesn't change by whether you like what I had to say or not. I've probably offended a few people as we've talked today. May have pissed a few people off. That's okay. My job is not to build a wide fence for you to stand on with me in the middle of something. My job is to get you off the fence. Either you're on this journey towards your purpose and serving in the world from your heart and your soul, or you're not. And if you're not, that's okay. You're not not on my team. That's all right. I don't dislike you. I don't think you're wrong. You can be whatever you want, but I know who I serve, and you've got to decide that for yourself too. And you can do that incredibly lovingly, but incredibly firmly. And people don't understand it. They go, I'm either loving and I'm wishy-washy, or I'm firm, and I'm an asshole. No, it doesn't have to be that.
0: Wow, I mean, I feel like there's so many things to say, but you know, even from my faith perspective, this t- talks about selling the truth in love. I feel like that is what you try to do. You're 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 speaking truth in service of the you know friends, neighbors, clients who you speak to. Just all those stories about. The guy that said, Yes, I had this human connection with my dad, like one time or something. I mean, it's, you know, there's this longing for connection. And as we find that, you know, you know, who we are, our inner truth, and use that in service of others, at least in my experience, that's where joy and fulfillment come from. Like in my own world, you know, in this podcast, we've probably interviewed 70 plus guests. And when I have a guest, some are prominent, some are not prominent. And when they say, you know what, I felt like I could be vulnerable and share my story and my truth, and uh, I felt like a safe place. I mean, that means everything to me. That gives me joy. I mean, I said to my publisher, which sounds a bit strange, um, it fortunately gets my wavelength. (laughs) I'm doing my level best to sell as many books as I can, because I might believe you either do it well or don't do it at all. But I don't really, my issue is not whether it sells one book or 10,000 or what have you. I just want to be faithful to what I feel like i am being called to. And I think from your perspective, serve others. If I'm serving others, then that's a win. The numbers will take care that's of it. themselves. I mean, I'm, I've, you know, I've got a fantastic team in every aspect, but that, I mean, everybody wants joy and fulfillment. Every, everyone on the planet wants to, and at the, at the end of the day, and I think you talk about this in, uh, in your book in terms of eulogy. You know, when all said and done, who wants to have that eulogy that says, Joe, Mary, they were a billionaire, they founded all this, they broke all these records. Really? They want to feel like their kids, their loved ones, and their friends were proud of them. They want they want to feel like people say, you know what? They made the world a better place. You know? People loved who they were and they maybe nobody's ever heard of them but maybe you know what I'm saying it's and you talk about this in your book and I feel like you know people need to understand especially successful people because it's really tough you've got all sorts of people telling you as I did at one point in my life oh you're wonderful you're amazing you know all the curry favor and you know pretty soon you arrive
1: with a smoke machine and direct it up your skirt
0: and (laughs) even if even if you see it the first time after about a couple hours it, it tends to break you down. There's only so much praise that we can withstand. Your, your cynicism meter starts getting eroded by you know, the praise and the adulation. It's tough, as I often say, praise is a pretty tough thing to withstand, but, but you're really fighting for people's inner soul. In fact, you talk about the soul in your book, I noticed, I think, towards the end. It says, here we go, my belief, not necessarily the truth, is that the reason we go into leadership is to reconcile our soul that's an incredible phrase. So, sorry, meandering a bit here, but does that kind of make sense that you're fighting for people's inner truth and joy and fulfillment in the right places? But so talk about how does this, how does the soul weave itself in there into what you're talking about?
1: Well, as I said earlier, I don't believe, and by the way, I want to thank you for asking these questions. And these are for you as you listen to this, you know, you want to recognize that even the questions that, Warwick is asking me, maybe ask yourself, because this is not for our entertainment. This is for you in service of you. So, you know, don't be passive in this. Make sure that there's an activity in it. Um, you know, for me, my talking of the soul, again, as I said in the book, it's not the truth. It's my truth. Speaking of the soul, is not a not in the context of anything to do with any religion, although you can put it in that if you want. Um, it's in the context of a spirituality, of something that is beyond me, as in the ego, mind, or beyond me, as in the body. And, and what that is, is, again, my truth, not the truth. You arrive here on the planet, you are not broken. You are massively brilliant in all kinds of ways that may not fit into the categories by which they determine genius or brilliance, but everybody has their own gifts. However, and this is, you know, my psychology background. However, the desire to fit in, the desire to belong is so powerful that we trade our soul in order to get acceptance. So we, we trade acceptance for approval. Uh, uh, approval for, uh, we trade our authentic- authenticity, our, our sense of truth for uh, for the approval of those we need to survive. I mean, think about a bird, right? Think about a giraffe. Think about any other animal. It comes out and it can pretty much take care of itself pretty fast. And oftentimes if it can't, it's dad will eat it or it will, you know, or his mother will bug off and you're all on your own. We as, you know, humans, we're pretty useless. We're pretty useless for a long time, right? For a long, long time, we can't take care of ourselves. So how do, you, how do you mitigate that as a being? You look to those who are more powerful than you, and that is the god and goddess of your life in a traditional family, which is mom and dad. Mm-hmm. They know why the grass is green, why the sky is blue. They know what time you should get up even though you're still tired. They know what time you should go to bed even though you're wide awake. They know when you should eat even though you're not hungry, and they know when you should stop eating even though you are hungry. They have all the power. So you learn pretty fast, if I want to survive, I've got to get along with these people. And as part of that survival, part of your limbic system of your brain is saying, take care of that. What that means is, they're that powerful, they must be perfect. And from there, you get what's called defective premise. Defective premise means this, psychologically, it means this. If they don't love me in the way that I need to be loved and they're perfect, there must be something defective in me. Mm. So you begin to disenfranchise parts of yourself. You begin to disenfranchise your soul. You disenfra- Maybe you grew up in an academic family, so you disenfranchise your creativity. Maybe you grew up in an artistic or creative family and you disenfranchise your academic pull. Maybe you are liberal in a conservative family, and so you begin to dis- disenfranchise that part of yourself, or vice versa. You begin to disenfranchise the parts of yourself. And so when I come together with these people who are enormously successful, I will say to them, listen, here's what I want you to know. I don't have a billion dollars. You do. That's great. So why am I here? You know, I'm not here to help you make more money, right? And they go, no, good. Let's get that established because you are going to start pulling that up as well. You haven't taught me any business strategy. I'm not here for that. What I'm going to tell you is this, what we're going to do. Will increase your business, how do I know because it 's never not done that, but that 's never the outset. The outset is to bring home the disenfranchised parts of your soul because your success and this this is important your success is a result of laser beam targeted focus it 's amazing what you 've done to reach the level of success you have achieved is awe-inspiring, and most people would go, wow, I don't know how you did it. And I'm in—I earnestly in respect of that and honor that. You had to be laser beam focused, which means that maybe family issues and family events went by the side and other things didn't get the care that they needed, but you got to that and you achieved it. That's success. But fulfillment and purpose isn't laser focused. It's microscopically focused. And they go, what do you mean? If you look down a microscope at a drop of water, you suddenly see an entire universe open up inside that microscope. We're looking down and in, not out. Mm. And they go, well, will I lose my laser beam focus? And the answer is yes for a short period because you're focused. But what happens is that microscopic focus feeds the laser focus. But now you're being driven to that same level of success with that same level of determination, but from a place of fulfilling your soul, serving others making a unique difference in the world that only you can do. I can't make the difference Gary can make. I can't make the difference Warwick can make. Every one of us has our own unique
0: gift to bring. I almost feel like you help people's souls be fulfilled, in almost a sense you're a, a liberator of souls, you know? You know, you, you help yeah, unearth. That's not
1: a word I can use. <laughs> 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 Gary will back that up from marketing. Ooh, another yeah. ooh. Yeah. Oh, oh, he's going to come over and rub my crystals. I can feel it. <laughs> uh, um, is, are you rubbing your crystals or is it just the way you're sitting? You know, that's not who I am. Right. It, but it is deeply spiritual. But yeah. as you can get from my personality so, there's nothing woo woo about me. No. But spiritual and woo woo don't have to be the same. You've probably put them in the same category but they're not. Right, right, right. Spiritual really is connecting to your soul to have action in the world.
2: And I like what you said Dove uh when you went through the several ways in which we disenfranchise parts of ourselves because here's why I think that's important to listeners of this podcast in particular. This is called beyond the crucible. We talk about crucible experiences and what you can learn from them, how you can not bounce back from them, but bounce forward from them, change the trajectory of your life in a good way. And disenfranchising parts of yourself is a way to self crucibleize yourself, isn't it? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And this is why people will become, and they they are shocked to say, you know, I haven't I haven't gone through a crucible moment I haven't of you know I've got a billion dollars I've got a big house I've got a yacht in Monte Carlo I've got I bought the wife a new set of who you know I've got myself a new Rolex I've got all that stuff I haven't had a crucible moment and I say really and they go yeah I say how many times have you secretly cried even without tears? it's not an event in my case it's certainly an event sure in warwick's case it's an event in the guy who had a heart attack maybe it's an event sure. but it's not and and i always say this here's how i will explain it to you i take a stick of dynamite and i shove it in a rock i light the dynamite what happens to go the rock cracks open i go great what happens if i take 30 years and just drop water one drop at a time every second on that same rock does it still not split and they go yeah it does It's actually more painful because it's not rapid. And the level of tolerance psychologically goes up. This is the problem. Human beings are tolerant. One of the great teachings um, is that we should be tolerant. And I always say that's a terrible teaching. Please don't be tolerant. Be compassionate, be caring, be loving. But tolerance is putting up with. Don't be tolerant. I'm not tolerant. I'm compassionate, I'm empathetic, I'm understanding, but I don't want to be tolerant of things that are breaking that rock down that is my soulful foundation. So you're absolutely right, Gary. People are dripping on their own soul. Right, right. And they're creating a crucible in a in a fractional second over and over and over again, selling a little shaving of their soul every day. And they go, well, there was no real event. No, I get it. You've been doing the event, you've been buying into the family uh, mechanism, you've been buying into the family doctrine day after day, week after week, year after year, you're following a family business that is in something that you would have nothing to do with if you were suddenly brought into this, but you feel a responsibility? This is a problem.
0: Absolutely, so you're
1: right. Absolutely, you're right.
0: You know, it reminds me of a. I think it's Thoreau had this quote: uh, "People leading lives of quiet desperation." That's kind of like what some of these folks drip by drip. Their soul, their happiness, their joy is eroding. Even if on the outside they're successful, and it's it's just like drops of acid year after year. It's. Um, and you're really trying to, uh, I know it sounds a bit woo-woo, but you're trying to save these people. But in saving them, I, I, I agree with you 100%. They will be even more successful and more fulfilled and serve others and have tangible impact on other people's lives. I mean, that stuff is real. If you're measuring you're, you're your doing. success
1: by the numbers in a bank account, it's never going to fulfill you. You know, and, and as you mentioned earlier, work in the book, I talk about the eulogy, and, you know, you, you have to, if you've ever, and as you listen to this, I, I'll tell you the piece from the book. If you've ever been to a funeral, I've been to lots. Um, you know that the person delivering the eulogy, what their job is, is is to dry clean the person who died. <laughs> they take out all the dirty spots. right That's the job of the eulogy, right? And I can clearly remember going to my friend's dad's funeral. My friend's dad was a, I don't know if I can say dick on here, but. We'll go with that and maybe you can beep it. But he was just not a good guy. He was a really terrible human being. But at the eulogy, my friend asked me to come to this funeral. I didn't want to go, but my friend said, I need your support. So I went. I said, I'll sit in the back, but I'm not sitting in the front. He goes, okay. And the person at the front gave a eulogy about a story that I'd never heard. And it was about how, how my friend's dad had paid the rent of a neighbor back in the 60s and never asked for the money back when this person was really desperate. That's a beautiful act. It was the only decent thing he did. He also used to uh, tie my friend to the hot water boiler and whip him with a Hot Wheels track. And he wasn't the only one. He did it to his siblings and he did it to the mother. You know, this is not a good human being, but everybody's going to remember this story. That's what a eulogy is it's a dry cleaning of your history. Okay. But here's the thing as we sat at that funeral, we sat at the back, and the people at the back, Well, my friend who definitely knew his dad and me and no way I'd gotten to know him and other people. And I listened to the whispers. What are the whispers? The whispers were that he was an ass. The whispers were that he was mean and he was cruel. And those were the whispers, not the eulogy. And you, as you listen to this, no matter what they get up front and talk about how you started the dingle dongle uh, research foundation, you got a name of a wing of a hospital after you and you've, you know, you've started a foundation for lost dogs or whatever the heck it is. Great. Okay. Wonderful. That all those things are good. They're not bad, but is that the dry cleaned version? So I challenge you in the book and in my work with the people, I challenge them and I say, here's the challenge. What are you afraid they'll whisper? You've got to go to that. Not just what, what do you want to say the eulogy? What are you afraid they'll whisper? So in part of my eulogy, is Dove was a courageous man who lived his life helping others fulfill their soul's purpose. It's not all of it, but it's part of it.
0: Okay, mm.
1: but it starts with courageous men. So, what do you think? I'm afraid they'll whisper at the back. Come on,
2: guess. Uh, you said the, the your friend's dad was a was a dick. <laughs> uh, that they say that about you is that, is that one of the things you fear? No. no.
1: If I if the front of mine is that Dove was a courageous man who lived his life. Blah blah blah. My fear is that Dove is a coward. You have to go to the opposite. Now, I, my, my ego immediately jumps in and goes, I'm not a coward. Think about all these crazy stunts I did. That's not cowardly. Think about it. And I go through all these reasons to justify that I'm not a coward. So that doesn't work on its own. Because my ego can justify that I'm not a coward. So I went, I got I to test this. So I said, what if I, have an, if I add an expletive? I won't say what the expletive is, but it starts right. with F and with yes. uh, K. No, I-N-G, <laughs> right? So Dove was a F-ing coward. Ooh, that punches a little bit. But still, my you could fight. And I go, okay, what if I have five grandchildren? What if one of my grandchildren is a little bit older, sits in the back and says that? Yeah. Devastating. Absolutely. Whether it's true or false doesn't matter.
0: Right. It's
1: devastating. Yeah. So what does that do? The pull forward is the eulogy. I want to be, Dove was a courageous man who lived his life serving others in finding their soul's purpose. Yes, I want to be that guy. So I'm working towards that every day. But when I feel lazy, when I feel I've got a lot of great excuses for not doing it, I remember the whispers of my grandchildren. And I go, get off your ass, stuff, and do what you need to do, even though you're terrified, even though you don't want to do it, even though you're feeling lazy, even though you've got all the justification for not doing it, because I don't want those whispers.
0: And you want to live live your soul's purpose every day, and you know, and, n- and none of us are perfect. I mean, I have days in which I'm not my best self, and say, okay, that wasn't a great day. I can do better, and you do better. You apologize, whatever you need to do, but. You know, you're not measured by, you know, we're going to have moments when we don't live up to the highest ideals of our soul's purpose, but day in, day out, overall, is that is that the norm of your life? Or is it a bit like your friend's dad? There was one kind act amidst a sea of a million torments and tortures of others, you know, which that's really the key, right? Is in the sum total. Absolutely. You know, is this? I had a couple. I had a few days when I wasn't at my best self, or maybe a few months or whatever. But in total, on average, day in day out, in your case, I did live a courageous life in service of others. If at that point, you know, from my faith perspective, you know, uh, there's a scripture that says, you know, "Well done, good good and faithful servant." And I'm sure there's echoes of that in other faith traditions. That's what we all want, whatever eternity is going to be, right?
1: Yeah. And the thing about this that I really want to make clear in case I haven't, and this is really important, this is not about you being perfect. Right. So again, you know, as I talked about at the beginning, I've studied all these religious philosophies and I'll often meet people of faith, not necessarily Christian, but of whatever faith, you know, and I can see their torture. It's clear to me. And I go, you know, it's interesting to me that I can see your torture, yet you talk about being a faith. And they go, yeah. And I say, do you know anything about the Bible? And they'll go, yeah. And I go, okay, great. So can I ask you what you know about Moses? And they go, not much. Moshe Abenu, you know, one of the forefathers of the Jewish faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know that he murdered a, uh, an Egyptian? No. Yeah, he murdered an Egyptian. He's a murderer. Right. Okay. So, you know, pretty good guy, you know, still held high, but he was a murderer. What about David, King David? You know, he he was Uh, the great shepherd, right? He was anointed by God. What about him? What do you know about him? Well, you know, God chose him to be the king. Yeah. But here's the thing you might not know about him. But while he was the king, he saw this really hot chick. Her name was Bathsheba. Man, she had some booty. He was like, I'm in there. Right? But she was married. And so what did he do? He sent her husband off to the front lines to get killed so he could get himself some action. Exactly. Oh, apparently he wasn't perfect. Then there's this other bloke. You might have heard of him. Uh, What was his name now? Um, I think he was Mexican. Um, uh, What was his name? Uh, Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. Uh, Jesus. You might have heard of him. Now he's one day he's hanging out at a temple. He's having a chat with people, and he's you know he's trying to help them and guide them. And all of a sudden, he sees these people ripping people off their money changes, ripping people off, and he he loses his rag. He loses his temper. He gets pissed off. He turns over the table and starts whipping them. So if Jesus is allowed a temper, if David's allowed to be horny, if Moses is allowed murder, the fact that you were not so great today is going to be okay. I promise you. The only thing to do is to course correct. It's not to stay on that path, it's to course correct. And I don't say that to make light of any of those faith stories. I say it because I believe they're there to teach that lesson. While you're in the flesh, you have an ego. While you have an ego, you will fail. That's okay. Course correct. It's not about perfect.
2: That sound that you just heard, listener, wasn't just another well-delivered point by Dove, but it was also the captain turning on the fastened seatbelt sign saying that the time is approaching. It's not here yet where we need to put this Beyond the Crucible plane on the ground. Before we do that, though, Dove, I would be remiss if I did not give you the chance to tell our listeners how they can find out more about you and your services. How can they do that online? Thank you
1: very much. I appreciate that entirely. Thank you. Um, I'm easy to find D O V B A R O N. If you Google that, you're only going to find me, uh, <laughs> and, and you'll find many thousands of pages, but you can ov- obviously find me at D O V B A R O N. dot com. You can also find either of my podcasts on the usual places that you listen to podcasts. I have the leadership and loyalty podcast, which Warwick will be on, uh, in, in I think it's the beginning of two thousand and two, twenty two rather. Um, uh, he'll be on there. So that's leadership and loyalty. And we also have the Curiosity Bites podcast, which is also you can find on the usual platforms. Yeah, of course, I'm on YouTube. There's over a thousand videos on there, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, all those places. And I also have an outlet on Medium called The Dragon's Den where you can find my articles. I mean, basically, I'm nauseatingly out there. <laughs> if you want to find me,
2: it won't be difficult. Excellent. Warwick. Take the last question or two.
0: Yeah, well, thank you so much, Dove. I, I love how you're really fighting for people's souls, true selves. There might be leaders, maybe some are successful, maybe some are successful at a smaller level, they maybe in thoroughs words, they're leading lives of quiet desperation. Maybe they've had a big crucible. maybe it's a series of small ones. You know, what's a word of hope that you would give them where they might be thinking, this eulogy thing, if I died tomorrow, I'd be a little worried. So what's a message of hope you would give for those folks?
1: It's never too late. It's never too late. The only part of you that says it's too late is ego. It's never too late. And what I want you to know is this, as a message out to your soul, is who will suffer if you continue to play small, and by small, I don't mean success-wise. Who will suffer if you continue to ignore that deep driving purpose within you? You came to this life for a reason. You did not get your hopes and dreams by accident. They are your soul crying out for expression. And when you co- when you step into that, when you claim that, And you can. That is within you. You have the power within you right now. Even though they, whoever they are are saying you can't, there is within you a magnificence so powerful that it can transform not only your life but the lives of everyone that you touch. But to do that, you must be willing to abandon that which you're attached to. In order to get to what you want, you cannot step into the promised land while holding on to something that will never fulfill you. There is magnificence in you, and you deserve to bring it to the world. The world needs you because, as I said earlier, I cannot deliver Gary's message. I cannot deliver Warwick's message. No one else is you. You are uniquely made by the creative force of the universe, whatever you want to call it, to deliver your message. And you can only do that if you tap in to your soul's purpose, and then you will have more success than you've ever dreamed. But you'll have so much fulfillment, so much love, and you'll have joy, not just happiness, not transitory, but true joy. And that is worth dying for.
2: I have been in the communications business long enough to know when the last word on the subject has been spoken, and Dove Barron has just spoken it. Listener, uh, you have heard me say when I close out shows a lot, here are three takeaways. Um, If I tried to only give you three takeaways from this incredible episode, uh, we'd be here for an hour of me trying to do that. So here's what I want to do instead. Uh, Dove asks some questions in his book. That we've been talking about and I want to leave you with those questions that he asks the readers of his book to ponder so that you can ponder them in the context of this conversation we've just had so here are those questions first question what exactly is my purpose ask yourself that question explore those answers second question what is that value that I have given or could give to all those around me. What can you give away? How can you live, as we've talked about here, in service to others? The third question, what is that thing everyone else sees in me that I can't? Could be a very positive thing. Could be those whispers at the back of the eulogy that Dove talked about. So what are those things? Explore some of that. Take some learnings from that. And the fourth question um, from the book is, what is my own genius blind spot and what has it cost me? We could do an entire series on this podcast on that subject. But as for now, planes on the ground, we're getting our bags out of the overhead compartments and it's time to go. So thank you for spending this time with us. And until we're together the next time, please remember this that came through loud and clear in this episode of Beyond the Crucible. Your crucible experiences we know are painful. Our crucible experiences have been painful. Sometimes in Dove's case, very physically, very, very physically painful. In Warwick's case, emotionally painful. But here's the good news, it's not the end of your story. It is in fact, if you learn the lessons of that crucible, if you apply those lessons, those learnings, and they lead you to move in a different direction in your life, move beyond, as the title of this show is, beyond your crucible. It's not the end of your story. In fact, it's the beginning of a brand new story, which can be the best story of your life, because where that story takes you is to a life of significance.